When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, Ray here. I have a book recommendation for you. The result of more than 40 years of research and access to newly declassified documents, Tesla, Wizard at War, The Genius, The Particle Beam Weapon, and The Pursuit of Power, by acclaimed Tulsa historian Mark J. Seifer, examines Tesla's legacy through the prism of global conflict, offering surprising, often shocking new details about Tesla's involvement. A must-read for World War II historians and Tesla aficionados. Tesla Wizard at War provides new information concerning Tesla's role in the development of such creations as wireless communication and cell phone technology, the Osprey helicopter airplane, and the so-called death ray. This is a who's who of history, highlighting Tesla's links to such historical figures as Albert Einstein, Thomas Edison, Mark Twain, Louis Comfort Tiffany, J.P. Morgan, Guillermo Marconi, Joseph Stalin, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, William Randolph Hearst, Franklin Roosevelt, and many more. Tesla, Wizard at War from Kensington Publishing is available everywhere books are sold. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II podcast, episode 380, The British Eighth Army versus the Desert Fox. Last time, Rommel had launched his second attack against the Allies in North Africa on January 21st, 1942. He had been forced back the first time due to fuel, and indeed in this attack, which had started so well, he was now again a slave to his shrinking supplies. But at least Benghazi was in range, and that's where the Desert Fox would send the bulk of his troops. Sadly, General Neil Ritchie, in charge of the Eighth Army, believed, like General Wavell had a year ago, that Rommel was not committed to a true offensive, but rather was making an attempt to mess up any Allied plan of attack, namely Operation Acrobat. And as this was nothing more than a German temper tantrum, Ritchie would ignore it and get on with his planning. But to be prudent enough, he made some adjustments. Ritchie told 13th Corps Commander Reed Godwin Austin to help General Frank Messervy of the 1st Armored Division if it was needed. As such, Godwin Austin could tell it was needed right away, so he started pulling logistics units from Benghazi, and he ordered explosives to be placed around the port facilities, should they lose control of the city. Also, Godwin Austin ordered General Norrie's 30th Corps to move in front of Tobruk. Again, another safety measure. Countering this by trying to keep the initiative with himself, when Rommel got to Imsus, he had three separate forces head north for Benghazi, while the Africa Corps fainted towards Makili to the northeast of Benghazi. That should keep the bulk of the rescue forces away from his target port city. 
Godwin Austin made his own counter move by then pulling more men out of Benghazi and told them all to meet up and help form the line at Makili. This was a solid move, given Rommel's flair for the unusual, certainly in regards to short-term strategies. But his moves would not save Benghazi. At 8.30 that night of January 25th, Ritchie, thinking he understood Rommel better and that he had to be near the end of his fuel supply, shut down Godwin Austin's retreat order. Then, at midnight, he canceled the retreat altogether. Instead, the 4th Indian Division in Benghazi were to send units south to stop the German approach. That was nice, but which one? As Ritchie did not know that three columns were heading for Benghazi. Either way, it didn't matter, as the 4th Indian only had one brigade out far enough to send against the Germans in a timely manner, who were coming up the coast road. Also, Godwin Austin formally objected to the counter-order to his instructions, when Ritchie ordered the 1st Armored Division to Cheruba, about 60 miles due east of Benghazi, to stop the Germans from going any further north or east. Godwin Austin wanted to ask, did he know that the 1st Division was down to 40 tanks? Did he even bother to ask? When this message and question reached Ritchie at his headquarters, C&C Middle East Auchinleck happened to be standing right there. And probably wanting to prove himself, Ritchie chose to ignore Godwin Austin, and instead he took personal command of the 4th Indian in Benghazi. He would defend the city as robustly as if Churchill himself was standing in the middle of it. On January 26th, Rommel's intercepts of Allied messages coming out of Cairo gave the Desert Fox the impression that there was trouble in Allied command paradise. But unfortunately for him, he was too busy reorganizing his forces to hit Benghazi and faint east to take advantage of it. Also, again, fuel was being brought forward, because in two days' time, on January 28th, Rommel expected his three columns to make from Benghazi up north. Waiting is always the hardest part. But then either Mars, the god of war, or Fortuna, the goddess of luck, stepped in on Rommel's behalf. The weather turned bad on January 27th, and thus the Allied reconnaissance flights were unable to witness Rommel's shifting of units. On the other hand, the clouds parted just enough so the Africa Corps, on its faint east, was spotted and reported. Things were working out for Rommel as if he had planned them himself. So it will come as no surprise that, with this misinformation, Ritchie decided that Rommel had reduced his fighting to two fronts. One, the main thrust was heading for Makili, and the second, minor advance, was making for Benghazi. He almost had it right. As this was his interpretation, Ritchie ordered Godwin Austin's 13th Corps and the 1st Armored Division to take on the Africa Corps, heading for Makili. This left the 4th Indian Division, now under Ritchie's direct control, to defend Benghazi. But it has to be said that Ritchie only knew of the 90th Light Division heading up the Via Balbia along the coast, not of the larger Marx group of which Rommel was attached. That night, Ritchie wrote, The enemy has divided his forces and is weaker than we are in both areas. 
The key word is offensive action everywhere. And there would be much, but much of the action would be coming from the Axis units. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Just after noon on January 28th, Rommel's columns had been on the move since early that morning. Major General Francis Tucker in direct command of the 4th Indian Division since the start of 1942, reported to Ritchie that his scouts had spotted a major Axis column coming up the coast road. He would find that in time, it was the 90th Light Division and the 21st Panzer Division. But the important part of the message was, the Germans have 47 tanks coming right at us. Tucker asked if the 1st Armored Division could step in, but Ritchie said they were already committed to defending McKeeley from the Africa Corps. Tucker again signaled his superior soon after to say his reconnaissance units had picked up that there were German soldiers and that German tanks were coming at them, not Italian. This was going to be tricky. But Ritchie, to his credit when he heard this, realized he had been outfoxed by the Desert Fox. The port facilities were to be detonated, and the 4th Indian was to abandon Benghazi. The explosion started up right away, as did the bulk of the Indian troops heading north along the coast road. But that's when Colonel Mark's group, with Rommel, showed up, just north of Benghazi. Their presence managed to trap the remaining 7th Indian Infantry Brigade inside the city. Which brings us to the one, and only, Brigadier Sir Harold Rawdon Briggs. He was covered previously in the fighting in East Africa and helped bring about the downfall of British Eritrea after it had been invaded by Italian troops. Briggs had fought in the Great War as well, but most recently had participated in Operation Crusader, where he was able to take out two of the three forts prescribed to him. The only thing that stopped Briggs from taking the final fort was Rommel's tank victory at City Rezeg, as Briggs knew that after that, Rommel would cause havoc from there. For his pains and efforts, Briggs was awarded the Distinguished Service Order, DSO, on December 30, 1941. 
In other words, Briggs had been around a fight or two and knew that staying calm and reasoned thinking were his only allies at this point. As things stood, a superior force was entering Benghazi. Also, an even larger force was just north of town. Simply, that left, if one wanted to remain free, to head south. Yes, there were Axis forces there as well, but they were fewer. Hence, it was that or nothing. So Briggs broke his brigade into battalion groups and told them all, when you start, don't stop running or shooting. Head south and then east and then northeast. That will get you to the McKeeley line, where a strong defensive position is forming up. Take what you need only. The rest will slow you down and get you killed. From there, Briggs led the smaller groups south, in the darkness, and instead of shooting his way out, he chose stealth as they crossed several Axis rear lines. Once they were in the desert, Briggs turned them east and then to the north, reaching McKeeley, without almost any losses. A second DSO would be coming his way for this. Of course, as the last defending unit of the city, once Briggs and his brigade were gone, this allowed von Wehrmacht's 3rd Reconnaissance Unit to enter the city. It was their second time in doing so in less than a year. Realizing how close he had come to having thousands of his men trapped behind Rommel's latest thrust, Ritchie decided to pull back even further to Gonzala. Gonzala is about 60 miles west of Tobruk, or about 100 miles east of Makili. That's what Ritchie was giving up for his current peace of mind. Because as Rommel would turn Benghazi into a stronghold, any Allied line closer to it would be attacked and probably overrun. No, better to step back, shorten the Allied supply lines, lengthen the access supply lines, and focus on building up for Acrobat while keeping Tobruk safe. All this was made the order of the day. The days went by as each side waited for reinforcements, while they watched through binoculars for any enemy movement. On February 6th, the 8th Army began building its defensive line at Gonzala, having pulled back from Makili. Rommel approached this new line to keep the Allies honest, but he and they knew he did not have the fuel to come at them, not in any meaningful way. The clash had become a stalemate, with both sides seeing who could build up their forces faster to start the next offensive. As with any loss, the defeated British started asking themselves questions, and as it happens, started pointing fingers. The way things stood, Operation Acrobat was to have been the final march on Tripolitania. Now they would have to have a clash just to get back to the starting line. Heads had to roll. C&C Auchinleck wasn't sure who to get rid of, but he wrote to Ritchie, We must find new leaders at once. No personal considerations or the possession of such qualities as courage and popularity must be allowed to stand in the way. Commanders who consistently have their brigades shot away from under them are expensive luxuries. Much too expensive in present circumstances. C&C Home Forces General Sir Alan Brooke had just replaced General Sir John Dill, who would now be the British representative to the American General Staff. 
and Brooke did not hesitate to remove, as he put it, driftwood. One such person, though it was up to Auchinleck, was Major General Shearer, the Director of Military Intelligence in Cairo. To Brooke's thinking, Shearer had, for the last two years, been overly optimistic in regards to Allied abilities in North Africa and underestimated Axis abilities. Auchinleck, to his credit, defended his man, though that's not the same thing as saying Brooke was wrong. Either way, Brooke won in the end. Shear was out to be replaced by Colonel Francis D. Guégan, who would go on to become Montgomery's chief of staff. And there were to be other personnel changes, but some chose their own departure date. For example, Godwin Austin had fairly lost it when Ritchie overruled him, in first wanting to defend Cyrenaica, though to Godwin Austin it was all but lost. The delay caused by Ritchie's countering and then confirming the retreat order had cost the Eighth Army men and material that were certainly needed now on the Gazala line. For who knew how long it would take the impetuous Rommel to come dashing this way once again? But the personnel changes were not over. Not yet. Godwin Austin was replaced by Acting Lieutenant General William Gott to command 13th Corps who had been in this theater for at least two years and was seen as a good choice. General Messervy was given the 7th Armored Division as the man he had replaced, Lieutenant Colonel Herbert Lumsden, was once again healthy enough to command 1st Armored Division. Lumsden would do good work in the desert, but there would be no memoirs from him as he would die just before the war ended. Returning to the Philippines, finally, with MacArthur, Lumsden was on the battleship USS New Mexico when it was hit by 15 kamikazes that day. The British officer died while on duty. Lumsden would be the most senior British officer to die in combat during the war. As for Ritchie, Auchinleck let him stay in command of the 8th Army, but Brooke, again C&C Home Forces, let it be known that he was not happy about this. Also, he wanted Auchinleck's chief of staff, Arthur Smith, out. The man had been there since Wavell, and having to manifest what Churchill wanted with what his commander could accomplish had exhausted the man. He was relieved to finally move on. Sadly, this is where Auchinleck makes another mistake. His replacement for Smith as the former chief of staff would be Lieutenant General T.S. Corbett. Oh, Corbett was the real deal, but all his experience and connections were tied in and with the Indian troops. He would have been better placed in Persia with the 10th Indian Army, but here in North Africa, he did not know the commanding officers. They did not know him, and most important, they were not afraid of him. The chief of staff makes manifest what the C&C wants, but the chief also needs the help of the corps commanders. Corbett would turn out to be not effective. Thus, the 8th Army would continue to struggle to contain Rommel. In short, there would be no flow, no gelling of the staff or the servicemen. Corbett would stay intimidated by the large personalities around him, and Auchinleck, trusting Ritchie less and less each day, would send Ritchie detailed instructions. The latter 
became an errand boy, not a commander of the Eighth Army. This was not the way to take on the decisive and daring Rommel. On the other side of the battle line, there sat Rommel. Though he could not know the details, he had, with his little raid, besides taking Benghazi, ruined Churchill's super-gymnast and acrobat, the landing of Allied troops in North Africa. And though FDR and the Prime Minister agreed that Europe would come first, the Japanese were currently running amok in Southeast Asia. They had to be, at least, checked before adequate resources could be brought here to deal with Rommel and save Malta and the Middle East. This meant that the American General Stilwell and British General Alexander, instead of landing near Morocco and pushing to meet up with the Eighth Army, thereby crushing the Desert Fox in between them, found themselves, their men, and their equipment now heading to Burma. That's one hell of a detour. As for Auchinleck, he was in between a rock and a hard place, that being Churchill, who practically wanted him to command Eighth Army himself, and his many areas of responsibility, which included North Africa, Persia, Syria, Iraq, and the northwest frontier of India. It was simply too much for one man, who certainly did not have enough resources to hold them all. The most that he could do, for now, and for most of his holdings, was stay on the defensive and let time bring him more of what he needed. But zooming out a bit to see the larger board, all the major players were focused on their problems, and the priorities given to them were not of their own choosing. For example, when Operation Barbarossa got underway, it shook the world. But here, in early 1942, Auchinleck and others realized the fate of Malta determined their future, not Russia. But the chiefs of staff did not want to focus on Malta. They wanted to help the Russians bleed the Nazis. But Churchill kept speaking up for the island. And besides, many had to admit, if Malta goes, so goes Egypt, and then the Canal, and then the Middle East. No, it wasn't sexy, fighting and dying for a tiny island, but it was vital, and it spurred the Allies to action, however limited that may be. Then there's Rome's plight. They saw clearly that Rommel's supply line would never be safe unless Malta was taken. But in order to do that, German help was required. And they were all over the place. Countering this, the British knew they had to keep Rommel out of Cyanaica, as its northern bulge allowed planes based there the ability to harass Malta. It was all one giant interconnected puzzle, but only some of the officers saw this. Everyone else could only see their few pieces. Whereas the German general staff wanted to focus on southern Russia, so could not get excited about Malta, but Admiral Reeder kept the subject in Hitler's face by telling him now is the time to finally push out the British and their allies before the Americans could get involved in the area in strength. But it was in April of 1942 that Kesselring outsmarted himself. He told Berlin that Malta had been successfully neutralized thanks to the second German Air Force that had returned from the Russian front. So at the time, there was no need to invade Malta 
save those men for Rommel. As for Malta, it only got worse. The first three convoys of the year were disasters. In March, 7,500 tons of the 26,000 tons planned made it safely. In April, well, the Germans delivered more bombs than the home island did supplies. What, with 6,700 tons of bombs coming down, wrecking 11,450 buildings, but fortunately, killing just under 1,000 civilians. It could have been much worse. But of course, as this is World War II, all roads lead to Berlin. Hitler told Rommel that he could push on to Tobruk. Rommel had heard of another coming Allied advance, but he had to be done by June 20th, for then, the second German Air Force was to return to the Russian front. And there was one more note from Berlin to the Desert Fox. Do not go past Tobruk without clear orders to do so. Hitler was trying to have his cake and eat it too. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So just real quick, I'd like to thank the latest two members who just recently joined, uh, Bruce Caldwell from Signal Mountain, Tennessee, and David Zatmilo from Tel Aviv, Israel. So again, thank you for supporting the show. You will get the two extra episodes a month, and uh, we will see you as soon as we can with uh, the ongoing story of Rommel and the 8th British Army. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. They both come in giftable boxes with savings up to $46 and free shipping for a limited time. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.